before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Joining me uh, is a repeat guest, someone uh, I had a conversation with about 18 months ago. I can't believe how fast that time has gone by um, about the, the crypto world. And I was just so delighted at the time to have that conversation with my with my guest, David Dore, uh, because it was just a very sensible, level-headed conversation from which I learned an awful lot without any hyperbole, without any kind of... Um, uh, vitriol or cultish behavior on either side. And, and so I'm, I'm delighted to have David back again today. You know, when the FTX debacle happened recently, I was I was keen to find someone to talk about it. I wanted to let it settle because, as always, there are an awful lot of hot takes, um, an awful lot of um, uh, people talking about stuff that was, that was really happening live time, and it's tough to get some perspective. So I thought, what better person to bring back than David to hopefully have a sensible conversation about what all this means. So with that being said, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with David Dore. Well, David, welcome back to the podcast. I cannot believe it's been almost 18 months since you and I last had a conversation. It's amazing. Time flies. I think we're in a, in a time warp as, as everybody tries to readjust from suspended animation of being stuck in, in COVID, right? Yeah, ain't that the truth? Yeah, we were all still pretty much locked down when when you and I last spoke. We're just kind of just coming out of it. And, and look, you know, the, the the world's readjusting to something new every day. It seems, and um, I was I was so keen to have you on to talk about another readjustment that the world's having to make, and that is the kind of post FTX readjustment that everyone's having to make to to the crypto world. Because you know, when you and I spoke, I, I absolutely loved that conversation because you know I found someone who was educated on the topic, was a proponent of the topic, but not a cheerleader and very happy to to criticize where criticism was due. And, you know, the, over the last 18 months between that conversation and today, I've just watched the polarization of the space just get worse and worse and worse. And, I, and I, to be honest, I've stayed largely out of it because I just can't find common ground to, to talk to people. And if you have any conversations and present them to an audience, the audience has pretty much made up their mind and they either cheer you if you take their side or boo you if you take the other side. And so it's very hard to, to find some nuanced conversation. And never has that been more true than the S, uh, SBF FTX debacle where you know the, the proponents will either tell you that it, it doesn't matter and this is neither here nor there and don't worry, Binance is fine, or they'll tell you this is the beginning of the end of crypto. So I thought, who do I want to speak to who can give me a much more balanced assessment of it. And here you are, my friend. So thanks for doing this. <laughs> well, thank you for having me again. I think I think healthy dialogue in, in complex subjects is is important. And there is some sort of middle ground between, you know, dancing on tombstones and, and declaring, you know, BTC is is the only asset for life. So, you know, hopefully through our dialogue today, we we can encourage others to, you know, see some of that that middle ground. Amen to that. Wouldn't that be great? Well listen, let's start with the FTX I think debacle is the right word. I can't think of one more appropriate, but I'm sure there is one out there. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, from your perspective, you know, what happened and and perhaps why it might be important rather than than just picking over the bones of the who did what to who and when. Yeah, I think as a starting point, we should go back to the to the origins of FTX, which goes back to Alameda Research. And and really starts with Alameda Research's name. This is really not something to, to glaze over here because the famous kimchi trade, which is supposedly what, what Sam Bankman Fried and his, you know, his colleagues um, armed for Bitcoin prices in South Korea, Japan, and, and, and elsewhere around the world, that required them to lie to banks and open bank accounts under false pretenses. And, and they even named themselves Alameda Research because they didn't feel the banks were going to open an account for them if they disclosed their actual activity. Right. And this is so this is so relevant because this helps this helps put context to everything that Sam has been doing since. And when we look at the the anatomy of a fraud, whether it's you know with modern novel assets like digital assets, or you know we go back to you know Ponzi schemes a hundred years ago, 
they all unpack pretty much identical. And so we need to, we don't want to give Sam the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't deserve it. He was committing crime from day one. And my personal belief is that this is just an extension of, you know, criminal activity that started from day one and then just got ever bigger until it imploded. You know, it's interesting because when something like this happens, you know, I remember the Nick Leeson thing very, very well. You know, I was out in Asia at the time and and that was the opposite. That was something dumb that that became a gigantic fraud with someone clearly trying to get out of it. And the, and the paper trail was there. It was clear for all to see what had happened. And I, and I was fascinated to watch uh, SBF doing the rounds in the wake of this, all these, you know, interviews he was doing and the, oh, shucks, you know, I wasn't really meaning to do any of this. And, you know, I, I watched all that with a naturally cynical eye. And my conclusion was exactly what yours was, that this is all an act and there there was... Because because the other alternative, as I saw it, was just a bunch of kids who had no clue what they were doing, right? Which is possible, but unlikely. Um, exactly. So, so 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 let's assume that 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 is the case, and this was a fraud from day one. How do Sequoia and how do Ontario teachers and how do Temasek? How do these guys get caught up in this? I, you know, I spoke to a, a friend of mine whose son is in the crypto space and went for a meeting with these guys and walked out after 10 minutes. This is a complete and utter joke. So how, how did they get past that? I think that's going to be fascinating to see when the, the lawsuits inevitably fly, you know, from the LPs as, as, as they should, because when you go to institutional funds, you expect world-class due diligence. And this, this guy failed even the most basic, basic, due diligence tests. I mean, nobody bothered to ask this guy what he was using for his financial systems. I mean, I come from FinTech. Like, that's, you know, these are these are the basics. If you and I were operating a, you know, a gelato stand, you know, and somebody wanted to invest, they'd be like, well, you know, how are you keeping track of, you know, the cash and, 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 and payments? You know, this is really, really basic stuff. And, and learning just recently that these guys were using QuickBooks, which by the way, is unusual in itself. Not only is that alarming and, and makes no sense, but that makes no sense from the beginning either. That 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 to me is a huge red flag. People are saying, oh, these guys are just so incompetent and, and everything else. No, I, I, I suspect something much more nefarious because you just wouldn't build out like that from day one because QuickBooks is, has zero capabilities to handle that type of exchange activity. And I think we're going to find out these guys were running some other types of systems. And there's been some allusions to, to doing exactly that. So how does a Sequoia, um, you know, miss something like that? It's mind boggling. There's zero excuse. I, I, I think that you're going to see, you know, I think they were, they had a, a serious case of FOMO. I think that the, the senior GPs were listening to the juniors and the juniors were excited about this new, you know, amazing asset class. Um, you may have seen, I believe it was on Sequoia's own site about, you know, them thinking that, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried was going to be the first trillionaire. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say to that. Like, you know, you know, that says it all. Right. So I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of lawsuits with that. And, and there should be, you know, pension funds shouldn't be losing money on, on, on transactions like that. No, not like that. You wouldn't think. Well, let's talk about this as a fraud then. Uh, and let's talk about what kind of fraud it was and how fraud changes in the age of digital assets, because it, it seems to me that it does change things considerably. It does. And it's it's a bit paradoxical because on, on one side, the the ease of moving something, let's just call that something broadly a digital asset, moving and zipping that around the world from wallet to wallet, from country to country, from exchange to exchange, facilitates fraud in a tremendous way. The the flip side of that is the the paradox is that most of that movement occurs across blockchains which are fantastic for tracing the data. Right. So, you know, I, I've always told friends that are outside of finance, you know, when, when you're looking at criminal activity, you'd be better off murdering somebody with a better probability of getting away than committing a financial crime because financial <laughs> crimes always and forever, there's some type of record. Somewhere, somehow, there's always a record. And, and blockchain, ironically, is, is one of the most fascinating records that you can get. And a lot of these guys, you know, crypto Twitter's just been amazing. A lot of these, you know, forensic data firms are just publishing amazing stuff showing, you know, the flows. And I, I expect we're going to be seeing those in court filings here, you know, within the next month or two. Um, so, yeah, that's the that's the difference. It's easier, but it's also more traceable. But, but what's amazed me in the in the fallout is, as you say, there is some extraordinary 
forensic work going on by, look, largely amateur sleuths in, in many cases who are, who are just, but they have the availability of this incredible data set that, that allows them to trace things. And you kind of look at this stuff and, again, you know, my knowledge of the Bitcoin, my understanding of it is rudimentary compared to someone like yours, but I look at it and say, well, if it is as transparent as they say, and you get this stuff presented to you by people who are saying, well, here's the money moving, this is what's happened, this is where it's gone, this is... I struggle to find an argument against that. And if you can give me one, I'd love to hear it because it seems to me that, as you say, that the thing that crypto sets itself out as being its main advantage should ultimately make all this stuff so simple to prove that you just wonder what's left in the space now if there are so many frauds going on that are so easy to prove. Yeah, so here's here's part of the rub is that, and I, and I don't know if we touched on this on, on your last podcast, but even if we did, it's worth it's worth highlighting here, is that there's this there's this false idea in the way that volume for cryptocurrencies actually works. So when centralized exchanges emerged, which was the first type of, of exchanges for cryptocurrencies, what everybody was forgetting, and this is the irony here, is that centralized exchanges work exactly like any other type of exchange. So it's not transaction. Transaction volume on a centralized exchange Think of that as being recorded on an internal, let's call it Excel sheet, right? Since these guys weren't using any other types of advanced accounting, but it's not necessarily recorded on the blockchain itself. And this was one of our early critiques. We said, well, doesn't that kind of kill the narrative? If if this is such an amazing asset class, you can move it between your crypto wallet and somebody else's, but everybody goes and stores in an omnibus account on a centralized exchange, which is what everybody's been doing, yeah. then then what the hell was the point? Like, you, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think that that's where things get opaque very quick because you have these omnibus, let's call it wallets, and, and it takes a lot more sleuthing and data to get in there and see where the commingling of client funds took place um, and the other type of shenanigans that, that was going on. Um, and that appears to be exactly what's happening with FTX and, and Alameda. But the flip side of that is you look at, Binance and you look at uh, Grayscale, and again, this is a very potentially a very dumb question, but when I listen to this stuff and I hear them say, we can't tell you our wallets for security concerns, for me, I just go, well, hang on a second, I don't understand that because supposedly this thing is unhackable. And so that to me just screams red flag, screams you don't want me to know where your wallet is because you don't want me to see the activity on it. Am I missing something with that? Not, not at all. My sentiments, my sentiment is absolutely identical. Those are just screaming neon red flags that say that you know basically criminal investigators should be moving quickly. You know, not just civil litigation, right. but like you know criminal investigators should be moving very, very, very quickly. Um, that makes no sense, right? That's not a that's not a plausible argument. This, you know, what we've seen lately is all these conversations, especially coming out of uh, of Binance about proof of reserves, which are just. I mean, it's funny seeing it's funny seeing crypto kind of reinvent, you know, what we already know from finance and, and these excuses about not doing audits, which goes all the way back to Tether, key yeah. point of conversation to today, is it, that makes no sense. Like if 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 crypto aligns with what its proponents say, then these are things you'd be shouting and doing from the mountaintops. You'd be like, I had all the major force come in and audit this. Here's the wallet, trace it on chain analysis and everywhere else. And you, you'd, you'd be running victory laps and, and growing your business, you know, 10X from where it is today. And no, none of them are doing that. And so, you know, that that just tells you we're, we're far away from, from getting to the bottom of, of what's going on out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened in on a, a conversation that Michael Saylor was a part of the other day, and the, you know, he was asked the same question, and he said the same thing. You know, we can't reveal our wallet addresses for security concerns, and I'm, you know, I, I just, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I feel like I don't know enough to ask what feels like a really dumb question, like what security concerns, like what right. exactly are the security concerns that are concerns here? Because I, I struggle to figure out what they might be. Yeah, I mean, these are supposed to be air-gapped cold wallets. And, you know, something that, you know, we take really hyper-serious, you know, in, in fintech is cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is, you know, as we've talked about before, it's, it's one of the largest, you know, threat vectors that's growing exponentially out there. That's a risk that is not well-priced in. So it is fair that, you know, bringing up security as a as a as an issue, but not when it not when it comes to to blockchain air gapped cold wallets. Like that's the whole reason you have those security protocols, and the entire point of the blockchain and the wallets is to 
to prove what you say is there is there. And so the reluctance to do that is, is alarming to say the least. And I think that what you're going to see happen, you know, there were some conversations just a couple of weeks ago about this and it was showing funds moving from one exchange to another kind of hopping around as they, as they stamp their, their proof of reserves. And I think that's something really worth looking at because the, the thesis that we've had going all the way back to the Mt. Gox days in, in Japan is we've had this thesis running and it's the same thesis we have right now, stronger than ever, is that every single exchange is in on it. And that may sound conspiratorial. It's really not. It actually makes sense when you look at the flows between the exchanges. That When, when you see this interconnectedness and, and what I would just call, let's use a simple term, wash trading. There's such a mountain of wash trading. Like when I saw the, you know, the reported annual volumes for Binance last year, brace yourself for this grant. Let me give you the data point. They're claiming $34 trillion worth of volume. Okay. I mean, okay. no way. I, no way. I call complete BS. And let's, let's say that that were true, okay? If that were true or even 10% of that were, were true, That means that every single intelligence agency and criminal investigation unit of every G7 country is up on those exchanges and monitoring everything that's going on with eyes wide open. By the way, I believe that they are doing that because that would be the logical thing to do because you have all this crime, you know, that would be facilitated through these types of, of systems. I think that's I think that's one of the more plausible reasons why we haven't seen these systems shut down earlier is that they really are facilitating, you know, advanced types of crimes from arms dealing, money laundering, you know, you name it. It's 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 got taints of that across the board. But when you trace these things, like I mean, here's an example. Just taking a step back, right before Coinbase listed, people forget the CFTC sued uh, Coinbase and, and settled with them. They they had to pay a fine for wash trading. When your own exchange is doing wash trading. You have this just incredible conflict of interest, even if wash trading were legal, which in some countries they don't even define it. So they argue that it is permissible. That conflict of interest is so high. You're just a lunatic if you think that it's safe to put your money on a platform like that. You're just going to get run over and picked off. And and that's, you know, that's just the beginning. And that's the least of your problems. Right. So these, these are the issues we see out there. But, you know, I, I just look at this from a, a really simple perspective. And let's, let's just talk about human nature, right? Because that's the one thing that doesn't change. Technology changes our lives every day and improves the way we do things, but it never really changes why we do things. And so I look at, I look at what this technology gives people the opportunity to do. And I've spoken about this with a couple of people recently. You know, I, I, I talk about the entire history of mankind's progress is basically driven by two things. One to make things easier for ourselves and to do less work and two, to cure illness. That's basically it, right? You can, you can put everything into just about those two brackets. So if you think about what drives us in our DNA is I want to do less work. And an extension of that in later civilization is to get more money. Then what these things facilitate is the absolute embodiment of that. How can I get insanely rich for doing less? And if you give people the means to do less and avoid the regulation that stops them getting fabulously rich, they're going to do it. I mean, it's just, it's not a comment on any particular individual or, or crypto proponents. It's, it's human nature. So, you know, so I look at this and I look at, after uh, FTX goes down, I look at Binance, right? Let's talk about Binance for a second because they're really the last man standing. And I thought the, the purchase of Voyager Digital out of FTX's hands a couple of days ago was was really interesting to me as to why they would do that and what they're trying to achieve. So, so talk to me about where Binance is now, the options available to them, and the way that the community is, is kind of thinking about Binance in the wake of FTX. I think that a, a great starting point for the audience to reflect on, on these exchanges is thinking about how exchanges provide leverage, right? So, right. so Binance, very similar to FTX, provides a whole suite of, of trading um, products. Some of those are spot instruments. Let's just keep it very simple, spot Bitcoin. Other products are derivatives instruments. So let's say a Bitcoin futures contract. And this is important to distinguish because when you start talking about leverage, you could just do a cash only you know, Bitcoin position in spot. And that's going to be supposedly 
your safest, most conservative position. So you're not borrowing from the exchange or through the exchange as it's providing you know capital from its other other users um, you're not levered up but then there is spot margining where you're borrowing and paying an interest rate for that and then there's derivatives right so derivatives is 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 you know as a market skies that futures contracts margining is very different than than equities you're, you're putting down it's a deposit not necessarily a borrow so it's implicit leverage versus explicit. And then of course you can go all the way and you could borrow and do futures, right? So you you could really, you know, go to the moon. Now, what's been curious to us for a long time and I think these are the questions that need to be posed front and center for for Binance. How is it possible that an exchange that offers leverage greater than 100x, where does that money come from? Where where are they finding the funds for that? Are we supposed to believe that all of those funds are from other users? How do they manage that? You're talking about really complex systems, both accounting and just flows. So it's not just the accounting for customer positions, but it's also the flow of that those margin sources, right. the implicit and explicit leverage there. And so the head scratcher we've had for a very long time is, are these guys just so full on their balance sheet that they can just provide this type of leverage and and not be assuming any risk. And what we learned through FTX is the answer is no. It's right. it's it's all hocus, it's all hocus pocus. And and I would I would say that's the same thing at, at Binance. And then you you still have to worry about, you know, the 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 real monster out there, it's Tether. Tether is the yep. Tether is the 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 crooked operations that stitch all the others together. You know, that's the that's the dirty token that, you know, flows between all the exchanges. And and we have to talk about Tether, too, because, you know, Binance is doing these things and, oh, well, we're regulated. Coinbase says they're regulated. Everybody is, you know, waving their, you know, their, their regulatory cards. But but just think about this for a second. How what compliance departments so I ran compliance departments, what compliance officer is sitting there? Looking at Tether, knowing that customers are using that as, as you know, to deposit, to trade, to withdraw, and 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 it's looking at that and going, you know what, this seems perfectly fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nice. Like nice. this is no problem. Like there's no AML KYC issue at all with this. So please, by all means, you know, deposit your tethers, trade in tethers, move your tethers around from exchange to exchange. I can't imagine what compliance officer anywhere on the planet is is sitting there comfortable with doing that. And that to me is very suspect. And this is where I come back to this view that, you know, I think sadly we're going to see the RICO Act used in the U.S. from the Department of Justice. I think you're going to see that these exchanges are far, far more incestuous than than people, you know, previously thought. Um, and and Binance being the largest exchange is is going to be really you know really front and center with that. Well, we saw this. We saw the the, the uh, screenshots from the what was it called the coordination chat room between between yeah. a bunch of these guys, right? So, ex- so, uh, ex- ex- exchange coordination. Exchange coordination. So so I, you know I, th- I yeah. think I think you're probably right, but we'll we'll come on to tether because we're there now. So let's stay with it because again, it's something that has just fascinated and floored me in equal measure. And you talk about. KYC and AML rules around the world. And and the entire world operates now on a schedule of, you have to prove to me that this is legit. It's not we're going to assume it's it's legit. And then if we find out it isn't, you're in trouble. You know, I've, I've right. tried to I've tried to send some money from the Cayman Islands to Singapore, literally right. a couple of thousand dollars to pay pay an accountant's bill. And the transaction is frozen until I speak to the bank and provide proof. So there is no, oh, we'll let it go, but don't let us catch you doing something wrong. So when I look at all the stuff that's going on in Tether, and to your point, there are an inordinate number of compliance officers around the world who must be looking at these transactions. And I just cannot get my head around why this seems to be held to a different standard. And it is, well, until it's proven to be fraudulent, don't worry about it. It's all good. How does that yeah. work? Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just such a bizarre position, right? So, so yeah, very much like you, you know, we're we're headquartered in the Cayman Islands, and and as you know very well, and maybe the audience doesn't, not all offshore jurisdictions are are created equal. And you know, we hear a lot about Cayman Islands in in John Grisham novels, but Cayman Islands is a top 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 tier financial center 
fully regulated. They're brutal. You know, they're not tolerating nonsense there. Nope. And, 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 and you basically need to provide a blood sample and, you know, do a complete DNA test to, to move a couple dollars around. Yeah. And so this is where we need to get into, I, I want to remind people of like how this works. Like, how do you even move money? Let's say you are Tether, right? So you're Tether. How does Tether operate? What is necessary for Tether to be able to do what it does if what it's doing were even legitimate? The first thing that they need to have, they need to have money transmission licenses globally, full stop. There's just, yeah. there's anything less than that. It's, they're just completely lying. They're breaking every single, you know, global law there is. This is this is standard stuff been around forever. It's not it's not even complicated. Second, on top of that, you would need to persuade, and we did this. So you know, at our other fintech, this is a huge, huge mountain to lift. It's not just when you're doing cross border transactions, but when you are behaving as a financial institution that's going to custody customer assets, and so you basically have an omnibus account that is segregated customer funds, meaning that the institution where you custody those is effectively reliant 100% on your AML KYC skills, KYC skills. This is, this is really vital to understand. And this is what I think a lot of people skip over. So when you go to a bank, I'll use a real example. This is what we talk about in correspondent account banking. If I'm a bank in anywhere in the world and I want to have access to U.S. dollars, I have to go to a U.S. bank that provides correspondent services that's going to do a crazy due diligence exam on me. And they're going to say, OK, because these are high risk accounts, right? The yep. bank is saying, OK, I trust you as a foreign financial institution and you're so on the up and up that I feel comfortable giving you access to this big account where I'm pretty much blind to what's going on. Now, I have the right to look into it at any time and you have to provide me documentation, but I'm basically trusting your your policies, procedures, technology, all your compliance stuff. That's a huge lift. I mean, talk to any foreign bank, I don't care how amazing they are in Cayman, Hong Kong, anywhere in the world, and ask them how difficult it is to obtain a, a US dollar correspondent account. It's damn near impossible. And to even simplify that, just try and be a foreign citizen or a foreign company opening a US dollar bank account. Again, right. damn near impossible. And so this is a specialty service that is dominated really by, you know, a couple main banks, Wells Fargo, Standard Charter, JP Morgan. So there's only a handful of banks that really properly provide correspondent services, except in crypto. We find some unusual participants. And this is where Signature Bank and Silvergate come in. And you find out these guys are just providing these almost just blanket, you know, correspondent accounts for, for Tether and, and everybody else. And so this is this is absolutely unexplainable. There's just no possible way anybody anywhere in the compliance chain could have signed off on that and said, yeah, this passes the sniff test. So this is where you're going to just see. And this is what's curious to me is that is it worth risking a federal U.S. bank license and, you know, jail time as a as a U.S. bank operator to, you know, for these guys that are just, you know, look like a blatant, you know, walking, you know, daily crime. Um, that's interesting to me. Like, why would Signature and Silvergate, you know, do that? But this is Tether's this is Tether's operating model if there's even cash. Right. right. And, and and what we suspect is that what we're going to find out is that there's actually very little cash. And it's a bunch of just papered loans. And it's like, here, I'm going to give you an IOU or an exchange gives me an IOU and I just print tethers and pass it to the exchange. I would say that's the much more probable scenario that's going to unwind is that tethers just, you know, a bunch of hot air and, you know, their, their lifeblood, you know, is dealing with exchanges and exchanges lifeblood is having the tethers there so they can wash trade and manipulate the crypto prices and rinse and repeat. That's the cycle. So, you know, the Silvergate, a response to Liz Warren yesterday was came out, and it was basically six pages of I plead the fifth, essentially, right? And again, you know, I, I, I guess I wasn't surprised by that. I didn't know what they were going to do, but when I read it, I was like, yeah, seems sensible. But I, I, I look at who's coming after them and who's asking them these questions, and I look at the responses and I think, okay, that's not, this doesn't now go away because you plead the fifth, you can just hear the rubber glove being snapped on now. So, I, so I, I, <laughs> that's right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a loss to figure out what the game is here. I think it, once once you get asked these kind of questions, you either go, all right, the jig's up. We need to say what we're doing here. Yeah. But but what does we we're unable to give you this information right now? What what does that 
do for them? What kind of time does that buy them? What are they trying to achieve by that? I don't understand it. I think that they're they're probably, you know, without a doubt, they're lawyered up, right? And I think that they're they're using that to buy the little time that they have left and hide behind the Bank Secrecy Act in the United yeah. States and, and divulging, you know, customer information. And they're probably debating, you know, the conversations I would imagine behind the scenes must be, you know, two different things. It's negotiating with, you know, federal prosecutors and trying to find a plea deal. And so I think there's a whole rush of crypto participants throughout the entire ecosystem. And it's kind of, it's game theory, right? It's prisoner's dilemma here, yes. and which is, which, which is fascinating to kind of watch this play out. I think they're all trying to figure out, okay, let me, let me, let me work on a plea agreement quickly. Because there's no other out. I mean, people are going to jail. They're going to jail for a very, very, very long time. Um, and ultimately, these guys will have to answer. And they're not going to have good reasons. I mean, look at the, you know, one of the most glaring things is, of course, this flow of customer funds, you know, flowing through Alameda's account. I mean, that's another one of those things that like, not only, I mean, I just, I, I'm just, I'm, it's breathtaking to me that, that you, that a bank could watch that happen. And they did. And they facilitated it. And and not be just hitting the brakes and and reporting you know reporting to their regulators immediately and saying hey mea culpa we we screwed up this was a compliance oversight that that was happening is just absolutely mind blowing so they're in a lot of trouble yeah I think it's just buying what little time left that they can they can garner as they negotiate so so I get to the and yet part of this you know and yet Bitcoin itself has been pretty rock solid these last few weeks now I read somewhere in a piece I, I read recently that. Uh, someone said eighty percent of people who've traded Bitcoin are underwater, uh, lost money, which which means, to all intents and purposes, retail's out now. They, they they've done, they've lost their money. There's some that's held there, but they will likely sell if they get anywhere close to break even again. So so what's going on in the Bitcoin price? Is this an endorsement of the characteristics of Bitcoin that the Bitcoin proponents advertise? That this is different and it is solid and it is a real thing. Or is there something else going on? Because again, I, I can't figure that out for the life of me. Yeah, I think that's a really fair question and something that you know is probably on the minds of a, a lot of listeners. And our view on it is that this is this is wash trading being maxed out and in its last throws before the gig is up. And and this is really you know criminals heading for the fiat exit door and trying to pull that stuff off of exchanges, move it around, and you know they're all googling you know non extradition countries. And and they're they're planning their exit, and it's sad to say that, but that's that's really the only thing that's explainable. I mean, look, you talk to a lot of people in markets. I I do too. You know, who's buying Bitcoin right now? I don't know any hedge funds that are buying Bitcoin. I have a good buddy of mine. He's a uh, he's an administrator for uh, for crypto hedge funds, and they've all been murdered, just murdered, yeah. complete completely murdered. You know, I don't I don't know who's long um, at these levels, let alone long at this type of volume. So this just looks like a, a, just a lot of churn. Uh, that's being created by the the algorithms out there, and that's that's my suspicion at least. Okay, so so if we if we try and look into the future, which I'm you know I'm I'm always kind of loath to do too far, but I with, with regards to this whole thing, you know, I, I look at I look at Tether, I look at Binance, I look at Grayscale as kind of three legs of a stool sitting right in the middle of this whole cryptoverse. And, and it feels to me now, you know, we are down to the last three legs on the stool. And if any one of those legs goes, I'm just curious as to how the dominoes fall from there. Because I look at grayscale, and again, you know, like I, I, I'm, I hold my hand up and say my, my understanding of this is rudimentary, but I've, I've spent enough time in this world to know the kind of things to look for. And again, none of that adds up to me. N- nothing about grayscale, DCG, any of those intercompany loan, just none of it adds up to me. I look at Tether, and I've written and podcasted about this. I mean, I, I don't even know where to start with Tether anymore because when I say nothing, nothing about Grayscale makes sense, Tether is, it doesn't make sense in a foreign language to me. Uh, I just don't right. <laughs> understand any of that. And then you have Binance. And when I look at Grayscale, there is enough product, let's call it product, there is enough with a with an ETF and with a you know with, with there's, there's enough legitimacy around that that I suspect that will be either the first or the last one to go. Uh, it'll either be the first one because of the the technicalities of the trust and, and and the intercompany loans, or it'll be the last one. I don't know. I look at Tether and I honestly feel like these guys could 
print a billion dollars or something to save their skins and nothing would happen. And I keep coming back to Binance because Binance is, we've now seen the model. For anyone that didn't know what Binance was, they can look at FTX now and go, okay, I now know what Binance is. It's bigger, it's more dangerous, but it's, it's a horse of another color. It's still a horse. And so I look at Binance and think that to me is the most likely thing to go boom. So if I'm right, if I'm right, let, let, let's hypothesize that for once in my stupid existence, I'm right about something. How does that happen? What might take Binance down from here? Well, you know, Grant, look, your instincts are great. I, I suspect you've been right a lot of times through, throughout your, your career. I think that there's there's one element that would be fun to, to share that is maybe not on everybody's radar as it relates to these things, and it's another systemic vulnerability, is, is going back to just Bitcoin itself, right? It, undisputably, Bitcoin is the crypto asset king, okay? And... And I had remarked a while back, and people thought I was crazy for this. And I'm sure you know any Bitcoin maximalists listening to this podcast are going. Oh, they're not listening. Don't worry. We we we, we lost oh, them ages ago. They're any, any that accidentally tuned in. Good. Tune out ages ago. We're okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So so for those of you that are left, you know I I posited that I think that it is possible that Bitcoin could actually trade at a negative price. And so people really forget the the way that Bitcoin is set up. And, and so, you know, Grant, you come from the, the precious metals world. You're familiar with commodities. You know, when commodities, you know, the, the cost of production is, you know, too low, you know, and the or the price is lower than the cost of production, people start shutting things down. Yeah. They stop the mining, they stop the oil drilling and everything else. And the systems reset and things clear out through the system. We don't have that luxury with Bitcoin. It has an ever higher cost of mining. And people forget that's not just to bring new Bitcoins into existence. That's to process the network. And so one of my critiques on your first podcast is what we said about Bitcoin is that one of the flaws is that the token is not separated from the from the ledger itself. Right. You need one to use the other and vice versa. And so this creates a really dangerous problem. And we're already seeing it, by the way. So if you look at the number of um, these mining rigs that are being thrown on the internet yep. and listed for sale, they're popping up all over the world. You can go get a mining rig for, for pennies on the dollar and they're worthless because you know the hash rate is getting ever more, more complex. So you're seeing the, the crypto miners are just being taken out to the woodshed and just beat to death and a lot of them are below their cost of, you know, their cost of producing and facilitating those exchange transactions. Well, this is a very, very deadly scenario that is extremely, extremely dangerous to breaking, you know, Binance and any of the other exchanges is that once that starts to fall, you get a little bit of a, not a little bit, you get a significant feedback loop is that the miners just puke up the last of their holdings because they need the, they need that fiat immediately. Other people do, and it just spirals down. And it's the old, you know, I think it's, you know, Buffett's famous saying is that when the tide goes out, you see who's naked, right? right? And I would say that when, when, while we're seeing exchanges blow up, it's when Bitcoin really breaks down that we're going to see the full extent of who's naked. And that's a leverage point beyond just the, the malfeasance and, you know, shady operations of, of, you know, these crypto institutions, um, is a piece that could, you know, blow up the system and, and, and really make it evident, you know, what's been going on this, this whole time. Well, you know, we saw something similar in the oil markets, obviously a couple of years ago, right? We, we saw that we saw oil trade negative and everybody said it could never happen, but, but how does Bitcoin trade negative? How do people, how does it trade at negative price? I'm curious about that. Yeah. So if I've got a levered position on an exchange and I need to get out and I can't get out, I might have to pay more to get out of that okay. exchange. Right. And yeah, so okay. I wasn't thinking about leverage. I was thinking about okay. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. That makes perfect sense. So, so this, you know, you you spoke about um, something that really resonated with me from our first conversation. Which, uh, if anyone listening to this hasn't listened to that, I would urge you to go back and listen to it because it was some of the most thoughtful commentary around Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that I've heard. And you know, when you talked about your Bitcoin being 1.0, this was something that has has been in my head ever since. And, and you know, the, I, I hear the word perfection used around Bitcoin a lot. You know, this is this is perfect money and, and all this stuff. And, and I just, somebody I listened to was talking about this recently and, and they said, look, you know, um, I think it might have been George Gammon. I hope I'm giving the right person credit for it. But he was talking about how, look, if this is perfect money, that's fine, but it exists in an imperfect world and it is stewarded by imperfect human beings who, let's face it, have 
found a way to screw up anything close to perfection throughout history by trying to take it that extra step to perfection, it unravels. So if, if that's the case, if Binance goes down or Tether goes down or Grayscale goes down and Bitcoin has a, a, a proper collapse uh, and goes down as near to zero as damn it, let's say. And, and I know people say that could never happen. I, I don't know. I think everything can happen as that negative oil price pr- proved. But what comes out of any smoking ruins? What does Bitcoin 2.0 look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that what I would focus people on is a lot of what we talked about the first time is this idea is there's a there's a tremendous misunderstanding and almost fetishization, if that's a word, of tokens, right? Let's tokenize everything. Let's, yeah. you know, let's tokenize everything in the world that we're going to tokenize Picasso and that's going to make it liquid to trade, which is complete nonsense. And and, and we need to to analyze for a second here, you know, what tokenization means technologically and what it means legally. So technologically, it's this idea going back to, you know, let's call it Bitcoin 1.0, blockchain 1.0, is that you cannot operate these networks without some form of token. So whether that's Ethereum, who's changed from proof of work to proof of stake, you still can't operate Ethereum without, you know, the Ethereum token. Same for the vast majority of, of, of blockchains. And so this idea of of tokens is really flawed. That was a solution to a very complex computer science problem, which is how do you you maintain security in a trustless network? And so the tokens was actually kind of an extra layer of of security to resolve that. Now, there's other systems that have jumped past that. Um, You know, if you look at Hyperledger from Linux Foundation, IBM, which nobody bothers to talk about, but if you look at institutional grade enterprise blockchain, they all talk about it, but that's not sexy. There's no token to speculate on. So people don't think about it. So tokenization is a, is what I would emphasize for everybody listening. It is a technological artifact. We need to just let that technology go. It was a nice contributor along the way, but it's time to kiss it goodbye and go. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't digitize things. And so this is where we need to be, you know, intelligent in our nomenclature is that digitizing an asset just simply means recording it on a ledger, right? So whether I'm keeping track of crypto kitties, gold, a stock or anything else, I'm just, it's just digital format. And digitization has been going on for decades now and doing it on a ledger is just, perhaps a better, more robust way to, to do it. That's fine. That's that's where we're going to see stuff come up out of the, the ashes here. The other problem with tokenization, as the SEC has been making clear, and they've been trending this way for a while now, I used to get in arguments with uh, securities attorneys, crypto securities attorneys, which I, I still find is a, is a humorous uh, title for, for, for attorneys. I used to get in arguments with them and say, you know, you guys are telling me that that crypto tokens don't meet the Howey test. Yes, they do. They 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 look exactly like they meet the Howey test. And it, it looks like a security. It smells like a security. It walks like a security. It's understandable that the, the SEC would treat it as such. So you have this other thing too, is that when you tokenize something, you know, now it's this kind of special, it's not just digitized. It's this now, it's literally a kind of wrapped instrument. And so now you bring in securities oversight. And this isn't to say that, you know, things that are digitized won't require securities uh, oversight. It's to say that if it's tokenized, it almost guarantees it. And so these are these are important things to understand technologically and legally. So what are the things that are coming out of the ashes that are going to be interesting? So one is more robust ways to record transactions, right? And, and I right. use the example of, look, if you and I um, maintain the same Excel sheet in Dropbox together, and we were recording stuff or let's go back to, you know, recording our accounting at our gelato shop, right? That's convenient for you. It's convenient for me. I can see your changes on the Excel sheet. You can see mine. Yep. It syncs up, you know, nice and easily. DLT is just a, a better, more robust version of that. Nothing more, nothing less. And by the way, that's a huge contribution. That's a great movement in the right direction. Yep. But it's not, it's not this web 3.0 revolution that everybody thinks that it is. It's just a nice kind of prog- progressive of technology and, and a nice contributor. Now, with that, some of the cool things that you can do is the a lot of these things coming out of smart contracts as it relates to, you know, my narrow focus is always financial markets. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. know anything outside of that field. So I can't talk about healthcare applications or anything else. But in finance, the idea that we could start to better resolve clearing and settlement backlogs 
using yep. DLT in smart contracts. This is a very this is a very obvious application, and I think that you will see some great things to to get us down legitimately to T zero type markets and settlement from everything in FX. In fact, you know, Swift is working on that with uh, a version of Hyperledger. Um, those are fantastic. Those are fantastic things for for everybody. Everybody will, will will benefit off of that. And whether somebody comes up with a proper digital currency is it's open to see. You know, I think experimentation and, and innovation is great. Do I think anything that's currently out there is worth anything? No, I, I sadly I sadly I don't. I think we need to just kind of flush the system. You know, let some of these these more robust pieces you know evolve, and um, and then see what comes out of the ashes. It's fascinating that you bring this up because this has been something that has been wrapped around my head for a while now. And that is, you know, I look at, as you say, Excel spreadsheets were a, a technological progression, right? And they changed the lives of millions of people. And the only people who got ostensibly rich from them were Microsoft, right? I mean, they enriched our lives, but we didn't get rich from them. I look at Dropbox, same thing, right? It's changed the way we function as, as an organization. It's changed the way we function as families, everything else. It's been enormously enriching, but nobody got rich from it. And that and that was kind of one of the pieces of this whole puzzle that I struggled with. It's like, I, I get how the technology is, is game-changing, but why should there be a requirement that everybody using it gets rich? I, I, I never kind of understood that. I, I thought it was great for everybody who's getting rich, fantastic. And when the price was going up, obviously we, we knew exactly who was getting rich because they, they enjoyed telling us. And, and that's great, right? I, I, I don't care about that. But I never understood why that would be uh, an automatic result of this technology would be to make people rich. And I, and I still struggle with that. Yeah. And the, the, the irony is that, you know, we're, we're learning that, you know, it's not really going to be a product that makes people rich. What people use, and, and I think a, a great analogy here is let's think about Linux as open source code. Right. Linux is one of the most successful, you know, open source codes on the planet. I mean, it's just fantastically successful. It's very robust. There's, you know, thousands and thousands of contributors to that code. And wonderful things have been built off of Linux, right? So people that service Linux servers, Red Hat, who was acquired by yep. IBM, right? I think $35 billion a couple, couple years ago. I mean, amazing, amazing and good for the guys at Red Hat, because I remember when Red Hat came about and people were like, how are these guys going to make money off of open source software? And they said, well, even though it's open source, people are still going to need some guidance. Business models like that certainly will be around and, and apply to DLT. But this idea of that, hey, I'm going to speculate on a token related to a project and that pro project, you know, you know, as, as Matt Levine, when he interviewed um, the podcast he had with Sam Bakeman fried and yeah. they were talking about mag magic boxes and you put it in a box, yeah. that was the best description ever. That, that totally Sam Bankman fried that was just absolutely, absolutely flawless in explaining exactly what's going on in crypto and, and why that's just, it's insane. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work. So, so you're right. And I think that we do need to focus on open source and that, um, the idea of having, you know, ledgers that are open and available and inspectable to lots of people to, you know, build their businesses off of and to help manage their stuff is is wonderful. And, and that's going to survive. I think that that will go forward. Um, will it make people rich at, at layer one? No, I don't think so. I don't think layer one is supposed to make people rich. I think right. that kind of goes against the entire philosophy. Right. Okay. Well, let, now let's come back to regulation because yes. the, you know, again, this is another part of this that that I've kind of understood to a degree, but not completely. And that, and that is the pace with which regulators have been moving around this. And, and we've, we've seen so much wealth destruction from you know, 60,000 down to where we are now. And, and the vast majority of it at the retail level, which are precisely the people that, that regulators are supposed to be there to protect. And so I've, I've kind of, I've, I've been curious as to why they haven't moved faster and, and, and punched harder during that period. But now you see FTX, and now for me, the, the quantum has flipped. And it's like, how do you not do something about this now, right? How, how do you not come out quickly and hard and stop this thing happening again? So is there a way for that to happen? And if so, what do you think that looks like? Or, or is there not a way for this to happen? Because there, there is still arguments that need to be had that are valid to be had and, and need to be had before any action can take place. 
Yeah. So let me share my perspective actually being, you know, in, in the midst of this and working with regulators. So FinCEN was one of the regulators that sat on top of us as well as state regulators. And so we know those relationships very well. I was in New York about, let's see, this is maybe seven months before the pandemic started. And I was sitting with a friend of mine. She is a top regulatory uh, compliance advisor to the big banks. All the big names, you know, she has as clients. She's wonderfully, wonderfully talented. And we were having lunch and, and I asked her, I said, you know, I'm just perplexed. And this is, you know, going back to Tether, I was like, this just screams at me as being just beyond obvious. Forget being clever or slick right, or right. anything else. This is this is just beyond obvious. What am I missing? How 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 come you know the DOJ is not all over this and everything else? And and she said, look. There's only two plausible answers for that. And I completely, you know, years later now, I completely agree with her. I'm exactly, I take the same view. She said, one, she goes, you know, when federal cases are being built, you know, those, they'll build those cases over years because federal prosecutors like to have things with a nice bow on it right. and they want to get as much out of it. They want to maximize the opportunity for, for a prosecution. And so they do take time that it, that is a, a reality. But the other aspect, and again, I say this with no conspiratorial uh, hints whatsoever. She says, you have to understand how extraordinarily valuable these networks are for our intelligence agencies. They're extremely valuable. We know that every type of crime is moving across these networks. And I'm going to give you, this is a real example, Grant. So there's a bodega in Caracas. It's moving $10 million worth of tether per day, <laughs> per day. So, uh, so just the one, just the one bodega, <laughs> just one bodega, one bodega is moving 10 million of tether per day. And so friends of ours that work in, 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 in law enforcement have reiterated this to us. I mean, they're just all eyes on this. This is just a honeypot of, of not just domestic crime, but global crime. And so if you think about it from the intelligence agency's perspective, and this is really logical, again, it's not conspiratorial, it's, it's logical. If you're an intelligence agency, the last thing you care about, you don't give a shit about retail consumers. Right. That's right. just completely meaningless. You're, you yep. know, if you're Homeland Security, you're not trying to protect some, some, you know, some unsophisticated retail crypto speculators. You're looking at stopping, you know, terrorist flows of funds to, you know, to, to sneak a dirty bomb into the United right. States. That is, that's your priority. And if, if monitoring Tether and other exchanges help to that end, believe me, they have a, a large voice with the DOJ in slowing down those wheels of justice right, to not move right. too fast and shut these things down. Now, to your point, though, is I do believe that now the cat's out of the bag. The inflection point has, has, has arrived. There's so many damaged retail investors now because of the FTX blowup that I think this is now where DOJ and the intel agencies are sitting down and be like, okay, guys, it's time. Wrap up, <laughs> wrap up your right. ops. <laughs> you know, like right, right. now we have to like we have we have constituents to answer for, and you know it's it's time. So I, I think you're going to see I think you're going to see the needle move a whole lot in the next you know sixty to ninety days. It's it's going to be fascinating, but I do expect that you're going to see proper proper legal action take place. Yeah, because I mean, it seems to me that the SEC can come from a civil perspective. You don't need the DOJ to come from a criminal perspective yet. Right, you, you, because look, let's face it. If if the means to for a bodega in Krakus to move ten million dollars a day is still there, they don't care what the SEC say, right? So it doesn't matter. You can you can you can come and shut this stuff down. I mean, it might implode the whole house of cards, but there's still going to be that window where everyone who's using these uh, these transmission mechanisms for nefarious purposes is rushing to get their stuff off, and that's going to be all right. Let's just stand outside here with a big net, and we'll and we'll. You know, we can just catch them all in one go. So, I, so I, you know, as I say, I've, I've looked at this. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I kind of thought about that, but not much. And, and to hear you frame it like that, it makes all the sense in the world to me. But the SEC, it feels to me now as though when you read something like that, there could be a million creditors at FTX. You know, a data point like that tells me, yeah, how, how do you not take some kind of action if there are a million people who have been hurt by this? Even look, let's, let's say that's doubled and it's half a million. 
that's still a lot more people than you normally get in any kind of major bankruptcy, any kind of major fraud. Big, big time. You know, and, and, and speaking of this fraud, one of the things we didn't touch on, but just a fun story to share with you. So right when FTX had um, announced negotiations with the city of Miami that they were going to put the uh, FTX on the, the American on the Airlines arena. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, Miami is, you know, city I've lived in for 22 years. We went and sat down with the mayor the mayor's office as law firm. And we gave them a presentation and this wasn't specific to FTX. We were just suggesting that all the exchanges were facilitating money laundering and, and crime. We didn't, you know, have the insight into, you know, how vast that was for, for SBF. But we said, look, this is this is a really high risk proposition that's going to, you know, make Miami, you know, look stupid. Now you can imagine a city like Miami, you know, they didn't care. You know, it's, it's any, any publicity is good publicity for, for Miami. But yeah, I mean, when you have this many people that are hurt, you, you you have a million you know creditors or half a million those are those are big numbers and so it's convenient too it it, it is telling that CFTC DOJ and SEC all jointly came out at the same time yeah and I think that one of the things that might surprise people is is, is look you know normally agencies don't coordinate very well but what's interesting is very precise coordination on this case. And I think that that's something people should, I don't think we're going to see a fight between the agencies. Right. I think these guys have a very, very clear view of the way they're going about this. And I think your instincts that I think the SEC may be kind of leading the charge here while, and gathering the information that they need, while the DOJ is getting this kind of much larger, you know, criminal, you know, enforcement case uh, going. Um but people should be watching that. When you see, I mean, anybody should be scared of any of those three agencies is coming after you. If they're coming after you and they're coordinating together and making, you know, a joint announcement, you know, on the same day, oh, that's it's 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 coming. It's it's coming. They're they're stepping up for the consumer. And you know, a lot of people would argue that they're late for that and they'd be right. Um, but they are doing it. It's it's it is now happening. Okay, so listen, before we close, and this has just been another fantastic hour, so I really, really thank you for your time, especially around the holidays. I really appreciate it. Let's talk about potential white swans that might show up here. Is there anything you can see that is is positive about what's happened and what may happen when the full extent of this is kind of revealed in uh, through the, the, the SBF prosecution? To me, the number one positive event that will come from this it's not even really the technology that would survive, you know, in the ashes and, and contribute meaningfully. I think the number one thing that will come back is the, the available hours of our young population that's very talented programmers, designers. We've lost over the last couple of years enormous, enormous talent being sucked up in the crypto narrative. And I think that having those people return to biosciences and any other field, you know, deep space exploration, you know, anything, anything other than crypto is actually an incredible economic boost that people aren't really calculating in. You know, so when you see all the all these, you know, young, talented and smart people that just got caught up in the narrative, come back and you know, apply their talents elsewhere. I, I think that's one of the most positive things that's going to come from this. And, and I certainly look forward to that. Fascinating. Fascinating. David, listen, it's been, as I said, a fascinating hour. It's, it's, it's vanished before I even had a chance to spin my head. And I, and, I, and I sincerely hope we get a chance to continue this conversation. Maybe, maybe we're going to have a drink in that bodega in Caracas together. I'd be fascinated to see it. it. We'll get security before we go, though. Um, but listen, before, before we go, just, just let people know how they can follow you on Twitter and, and, and all that good stuff. Because, um, again, you know, I think certainly for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, finding a rational voice in this space uh, with whom you can actually have sensible conversations like this is is just a goldmine. So so the more people that get to you know interact with you on whichever platform they can, the better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, wonderful. I, I appreciate being here. And for for those that want to stay in contact, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at David Dor D A V I D D O R R uh, is my Twitter handle. Been on there for a long time, easy to find. Um, and then our website is dorasset.com, D O R R A S S E T dot com. And, uh, you know, always happy to engage with, with thoughtful people and, and Grant, I can't, you know, I can't thank you enough. It's always a, a pleasure speaking to you and, and how thoughtful you are having guests that, you know, want to share, you know, maybe some views out there that aren't ordinarily heard. So, so thank you for giving me a voice and, uh, and sharing it with your audience. Well, it's uh, what a voice it is, mate. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for doing this around the holidays. Enjoy the rest of your holidays. And uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation sometime in the new year. Sounds good, my friend. Take care. Happy holidays to you.
Same to you. Bye-bye. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, uh, I'm not really quite sure what to say after that. This, this world you, you know, fascinates me uh, on a completely different level to the way it fascinates a lot of people. And uh, as I said to David himself, I'm extremely grateful for him to come on and just be a thoughtful voice of reason. You, you heard from my questioning there, I, you know, I am trying to figure all this out as I go along. So some of my questions are going to be dumb and some of them are going to be um, smart. And the ratio between the two, <laughs> I would think, is a lot closer to 50-50 than I would like it to be. But hey, I'm trying to learn what's going on with this stuff. So look, as you've heard, David's a very thoughtful guy. Um, the work he does is fantastic. He is on Twitter, as he said, at David Dorr, D-O-R-R, uh, all, all one word. And um, I find him to be, uh, as I say, a really thoughtful person in this space um doorasset.com is a place you can find out more about what he does with his day job and you know i hope to keep this this conversation going with david in the new year because i I think there is real potential in in uh crypto and blockchain technology but um it just feels to me that there needs to be some kind of event before we 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 get to version 2.0 whatever that looks like and we can find something that that can be built around the technological advances it offers and not the means through which to get rich fast. We'll see. Anyway, that's it for me. Um, my thanks to David Dorr. My thanks to all my guests this past year. I suspect this will be the last podcast I do in 2022. My thanks to you for listening. Who knows if a, an interesting conversation arises between now and January 1, I guarantee you I will find an hour to do it. So you may hear back from me. But in case you don't, again, thanks to all of you for subscribing. I really, really appreciate you. And um, I look forward to a new year beginning in 2023. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.